Hello, and welcome to the 50 Women Over 50 podcast. I'm your host, Sherry Lynn Starkey. On this podcast, I highlight women who have broken down barriers, challenged the status quo, or who have simply lived remarkable lives beyond the age of 50. So far, my guests have included pioneering entrepreneurs, passionate activists, artists, educators, and more. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered as together we extol the lives of 50 exceptional women over 50. Today, I am welcoming actor, lawyer, and writer Stephanie Kotsirlis to the show. In this interview, I learned about her incredible journey as the daughter of a Greek immigrant whose multiracial family gives her a distinct viewpoint on the American dream. Having been widowed shortly after she and her husband adopted a baby boy from Peru, Stephanie's life pivoted in ways that she could never have foreseen. We talk about her novella, My Zianti, which draws on her early childhood experiences, and she gives us a glimpse into some of the stories that she's working on right now. Join me in welcoming Stephanie to the show. So let's start with your birthday. Tell me about your 50th birthday. Well, Sherilyn, my son, was six years old at the time. So I had become a parent at the age of 44. Oh my uh, goodness. Yeah, my late husband and I adopted our beautiful son from his birthplace in the, the Andean Highlands of Peru. He is of indigenous heritage and the absolute light of my life. So I felt as though there was a lot that lay ahead. Yes. My 50th birthday didn't strike me as with a big thud. It was, okay, a milestone. But the people who gave me the birthday party were the friends of my son's kindergarten and first grade classmates. So those parents had become my friends. Yes. And those parents were all 15 years younger than I was. Yeah. So I was leading a life that made me feel very new again. Yes. It was a great, yes. There was a great deal that lay ahead, I felt. And I, I realized that I'd been doing things, Sherilyn, more than a little bit out of order in air quotes, so to speak, for a very, very long time. And parenthood was one of those things. So the 50th birthday, to repeat, did not land like a thud so much as at all, so much as it landed as a kind of embrace. Yes. I was, yeah, I was so touched and so feeling loved and moved by my young colleagues whose children were my child's age and who had the world in front of them. So that's what it was like. It really is interesting perspective. But that means that you were dealing with like, like almost the toddler stage and menopause at the same time. <laughs> what was that like? Yeah. Actually, menopause had come and gone earlier. Oh, okay. <laughs> but before we adopted my son. So menopause was not, was not a, did not play a big role in my raising of my child. Okay. It was kind of in the rear view mirror already. Okay. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. 
doing the midnight feeds and the night sweats at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry for the woman who has to do that. <laughs> I, my hat's off to her. I did not have to do that. Oh, uh, good for you. Yeah, thanks. So where were you living at that time? I was living just north of Bangor, Maine. Okay. Which is, yeah, which is not where I grew up. I was born in Chicago and went to school out here on the East Coast of the United States and spent almost a quarter century in New York City, where I was in New York. I was a performing artist on and off Broadway in New York's theater. So that was my first career. I became a lawyer after that. And when my husband died in 1994, it became very clear to me that bringing up my child while I was an associate attorney at a very large Wall Street law firm was not going to be good for him or for him. So I decided that we needed to find our healing and deal with our mourning somewhere else. And I was lucky enough to have friends through my late husband who, had, who lived in Maine at the time. And they said, try it up here. You may not stay, but just try it. So I went kicking and screaming, if you want to know the truth. But I did move to Maine. And soon, my little boy and I moved to Orono, where the flagship campus of the State University is. And that's where we met all of these people who threw me my 50th birthday party. And right. that's where he grew up. And um, what are you doing for a living now, then? I am a writer. I, I take it quite seriously. My first book was published in very late 2021. I should add that back in undergraduate days, I went to Brown for undergraduate school, and I was a comparative literature major at that time. Right, I see. I, yeah. I continued to write during my time in the theater. And of course, you write as a lawyer all the time, but it's a completely different yeah. kind of writing, right? Yeah. So once we moved to Maine and after my husband died, I returned to writing. And I returned, I returned to it to try to put my experiences into fiction, and that's what I'm doing now. So I have several manuscripts in the works. I've been published. I'm deeply grateful for that. And that's, that's my life's work at the moment. Yeah, well, it's not a small thing to do to turn your life into a book, that's for sure. So you've published a novel? I have. It's called My Xanthi. Now, Xanthi is a Greek name for a woman, also a place, as it happens. And Sherilyn, my first language was not English, it was Greek. Hmm. So when I was growing up, I, I absorbed Greek into my dreams in every way. I can't speak it very much now, okay? Because it is true that you have to use these things in order not to lose them. But the novella, Mike Santhi, really relies on childhood experiences that I saw and had when a, a Greek immigrant woman came into the household to help bring us up when our mother was quite ill with cancer. Yeah. This is a fictionalized story. It is not an autobiography. Yeah. And what it deals with is certainly the clash of cultures. I wouldn't say clash. I would say the mix of cultures. The, 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 the sincere wish to assimilate and become American on the part of many first generation people like my parents 
And the dangers in that, assimilation is not always benign. Mm-hmm. We can ask our indigenous neighbors about that. And yeah. we, we know it can go very, very bad. But the book is about what happens to a young man who is brought up in part by this Greek immigrant woman and what he discovers about her secrets, Mm. about the Greek Civil War, and how somehow she held on to the capacity to love despite having dealt with atrocity. And that changed him for the rest of his life. Right. It changed, right. It, It actually led him to become a defense lawyer for people who would otherwise be rejected by society. So that's the book in a nutshell. Wow. Sounds like a great story. I definitely have a link to it in the show notes so that people. Oh, that's great. Thanks a million. Tell me how you came to adopt somebody from Peru. Oh, great question. My husband and I married late in life also. I was 40 and he was 41 and a half, I think. And we wanted to, it was not going to, we were not going to have a biologically related child that became apparent. And we were absolutely delighted to adopt. There is, there are some requirements and some approaches to vetting adopted parents that suggest if you haven't been married a long time, you're not good candidates. So we ran into a variety of those kinds of requirements. And finally, we went to a seminar at SUNY purchase in upstate New York, where a wonderful lawyer who specialized in international adoptions made us contact her. If she didn't make us what she said inspired us to contact her because we were not succeeding with adoption agencies in the United States. And my husband, who had taught and lived in Latin America during his younger years, said it would be wonderful to link with the heritage of the people I came to know and love so deeply. So we, we consulted this lawyer, and she assured us, there is a baby out there for you. And when you're in that position, maybe some of your readers will recognize that there are times you think there, you'll never succeed, that there will be no one for you. And it's not that the baby is for you. You are there for the baby. Mm-hmm. You are committing yourself to somebody for the rest of your life, which we gladly, gladly wanted to do. So through a series of events, we finally were connected with people in Peru. Oh, and I just want to add here that when you adopt internationally, the rules change, Sherilyn. One country will be closed to adoptions, the next month open. Okay. And vice versa, for a wide variety of reasons. And we were fortunate enough to be connected with people in Peru. And what's his life like now? He is a paramedic in the city of Boston. Oh, nice. I know. So he's a brave, smart, no-nonsense person studying for his next steps, which I'm not going to describe because that's up to him, but he's got some other things in mind. And I'm hugely proud of the work that he does during COVID. You can imagine what he was doing also. So that's who he is. Yes. Sure. So what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? 
Never be ashamed to do things your own way. Never be ashamed to succeed in doing things your own way. I know that that is also something that needs to be tempered because the truth is we do have obligations to one another. We have obligations to our society. We have obligations to our loved ones and on and on. But at 30, I didn't, I didn't feel old at all. And I, I think 30 is a baby from my perspective right now. Yes. Um, so I, I think that with the, the, all those years ahead of a 30 year old, the capacity for change and to change when you need to is probably pretty important. Yes. Right. Also, as a woman in my family, I was in a family of a father, a mother who died, unfortunately, by the time I was 30, and two brothers. In the Greek-American tradition, though my family's men are pretty terrific, one of my brothers is my hero, it's not a tradition that was particularly encouraging to wet, the Greek tradition. And so that's why I say don't be afraid to succeed because there was there is in the greek tradition a great deal of limitation on expectations from women uh my paternal grandmother did not read or write in any language um so part of that we found out late in life that that was because apparently when she was a little girl she had a book in, that she was looking at in Greece, and her father said, what are you doing? She said, I'm looking at this book I'm going to read. I'm going to go to school. Mm. And one aunt claims that her father took the book from her, ripped it up, and said, no, you are never going to school, and you are not learning to read. Yes. So whether or not it happened exactly that way, that's the family lore. And I do know that my great that my grandmother was not adept at reading and writing. I hesitate to call her illiterate because I think literacy also encompasses wisdom, and she did have wisdom. She didn't have the capacity to read anything I've written, I promise you. So that, too, was hovering around the background when I was 30. And, And I guess I'd just say... Keep moving from that. That is not who you need to be. It's an incredible generational story in the context of the American dream where in just two generations, you go from being forced illiteracy because of your gender to someone who's an accomplished actor and and lawyer and Mm. and novelist. Like That's an incredible story. And you know what your story reminded me of when you were telling me about your grandmother? I, I was thinking about the Taliban in in Afghanistan. That's exactly what they're doing, right? They they're, they're they they don't want the women educated. They said that they were going to concede around education when they when they came back into power. Right. Of course, they reneged on all that. And I just cannot imagine what it's like for that generation of women who for 20 years were educated and went to university and, and led quite a westernized lifestyle who now, all of a sudden, almost overnight, literally, are not allowed to read. They're told to go home and make bread. 
And it's astonishing. Yeah. And we, as nations, stand by. Well, we facilitated it. Even worse, <laughs> we facilitated that. And, and we stand by it and let it happen. It's, it's incredible to me, but uh, I think that our listeners will be, should feel empowered by your story about how the emigra- the immigration just changed the whole trajectory of what your life would have been if your family hadn't come over. And well, bingo, it, I stand on the shoulders yeah. of people who made a decision yes. to come here. Yeah. They could have made another decision. They didn't. And that same grandmother, by the way, who did not read or write, is the woman who took my dad aside and said, come here, go, with, go for a walk with me. I believe this was after he got home from World War II. And she said to him, listen to me, your father is a good man. He will try to get you into the fruit import business with him. Don't do that. You need to go to college. Yes. And I think I've got the sequence of events right. But suffice it to say that my dad did go to college and complete a law degree under the GI Bill. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. That woman whose father had ripped up a book said to her child, you're going to school. Yes. Isn't that great? Well, because she knew firsthand how crippling it is to not have an education, right? So, yeah. And and when honest education, to veer off a little bit now, this is why I can only speak for here in the United States. I can't speak for Canada. We are, we are struggling in the United States with many efforts to limit access to areas of history and education. Okay? As you know, this is getting way too close for my taste to that moment when my great-grandfather allegedly ripped up the book. Getting way too close. I jokingly called that move Greek Taliban. Interesting you should bring up the Taliban because I made a joke about that to a friend of mine. We can't allow this to happen. We need to know who we are. We need to know about things as simple as immigration, which you just talked about for a moment. That worked for me, something great, something fierce. That worked for me. You know what? It doesn't work for everybody. And there are many people in this country who are not immigrants. Let's pause for a second on calling the United States a nation of immigrants. That is true in many respects and is profoundly untrue for the indigenous peoples whose lands we occupy today and for the black Americans whose presence here is due to the middle passage in slavery. Those people did not immigrate here. Yeah, that's right. Right? So it's important to know that history, to acknowledge it, not to do a a self-flagellation. That's the point. I think our greatness as, as, hum- as human beings is in our capacity to hold all these things in our brains at one time and to find completely unexpected ways forward. I think that's where the brilliance of the human mind lies. Yes, but what you say about education is so true. Yeah. And the, the trouble with it is, is, again, what you say, although we have a capacity to know so much, there is so much to know. 
Yeah. So much to leave out. What are you doing for fun these days? Oh, well, my writing actually gives me profound pleasure. So I guess I'd call that fun. One of the things that's fun for me is locating recipes to cook with my son when he comes over for Thanksgiving. We love, we love to find new recipes and, and cook things. I don't know how successful we are, but, but we do that. Since I live in a peaceful city, it is profoundly pleasurable to me to go for my walk every day. I know that sounds unbelievably tame, but the sheer beauty of being on the waterfront and seeing the clouds roll in, there is great peace and great pleasure in, in simply living here. Yeah. That answers well, your question. No, I've, like, I've heard similar scenes from, through these interviews. It's, it's women of our age have a little bit more time to actually connect back with nature and, and we, we are really appreciating it in a way that you can't when you're doing laundry all day. <laughs> well, isn't that the truth? Facing kids. Right. What a, what a privilege to be here at whatever our age is. And mine is, has a higher number than yours does. What a privilege it is I, to have survived this long and to have disposable time. Oh yes. my goodness. And the Dis- health. Yeah. Health to enjoy it. And the health to enjoy it. Great good fortune. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Uh, great question. I would love to have published two or three more books. Mm-hmm. I have, what is how many now? Two, at least two manuscripts in the pipeline. And I would like to have, have them published with a third that's in my head. And in 10 years, I guess one of the, the really blunt replies is alive. Okay. See, because huh. I will be 86 in 10 years. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just at the risk of being sappy. I'm really a little bit astonished every day when I wake up and say, yeah, I feel good. Yeah, good. Good for you. Nobody owed me that. Nobody owes you that. Let's, let's move to the quick round here. So this is just answered quick off the top of your head. What are you watching? What are you binging? What are you consuming? What are you enjoying? Okay, what I'm watching right now is a very strange combination of cooking shows, which I happen to love. I didn't think I would, but I do. And I am watching a great many videos of men exonerated from wrongful convictions for which they served decades in prison. Now, why would I watch those things? Oh, I know why, because I watched the exact same stuff as you. Wow, I didn't expect that one. Wow, Sherilyn, all right. I want you to know that I am also incorporating this information into um, my next manuscript. Okay. So it will be, one of the characters will be a person who has been exonerated by the Innocence Project and others after having been wrongfully convicted of a crime. One of my manuscripts is very much about a search for grace by three people who get pulled into the maw of the capital punishment system in the United States and how they fight for their humanity within that system. Not one of the three is the convict himself. They are a a murder victim's mother, and she is a pacifist. She has been invited to watch the execution 
of her daughter's killer 15 years after the event and is absolutely struggling with whether or not to go. Uh, does she go there to support her daughter's memory? Does she stay away to express her disgust with the system? And there are all kinds of vengeful thoughts that come up. This is a heavily researched manuscript, as you might imagine. The second character is her best friend. The third character is a death row prison guard who has reached the end of his rope in implementing this punishment and is ready to walk away from it because he's got to reclaim his soul again from this thing. Well, I think you've got a hit on your hands here. Well, from your, from your mouth to God's ears, as my grandmother said. Thank you. Well, you know how popular these podcasts are, all these two crime podcasts, the, these cold case podcasts, and that it yeah. all uh, results in the, in the exoneration of someone who is wrongly convicted and innocence project themes seem to come out. Like I listen to a lot of these things. So that's very interesting. What prompted you to do that? I don't know. I'm a bit of a true crime nut. No kidding. I, I like true crime. I don't know why. I just do. I just like the grittiness of it. And I like the fact that it's an actual impact on people's lives. Yeah. And, and I was laughing when you talked about uh, food shows because that is how I got through the pandemic was oh. watching all these food preparation shows. And it was just such a visually appealing way that you could kind of like flatline and not think about what was going on in life. And and there was one I watched, it was called My Kitchen Rules out of Australia. It was 10 seasons of 50 episodes each. Oh, and I went the distance, man. I watched every single <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, that's hilarious. Yes. Tell me the name of it again. My Kitchen Rules. My Kitchen Rules. Well, you know where I'll be searching tonight. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, by the way, the book that I mentioned to you the, about the executions, the challenge for me, if I may add, is that there is a true crime element in it, no question about it. But what I want the reader to do is to go with me into the memories and the heads and the emotions of these three main characters so that we understand that could be me. Mm. That could be me. It's not just an action-packed novel. It's about what happens to you when a system asks you to sacrifice who you thought you were. Are you doing any charity work or volunteering in your community or? Yeah, thank you for asking. When I moved here to Maine, I didn't practice law anymore. I ended up doing a lot of strategic planning and counseling and uh, consulting, I should say, with nonprofits. Right. So I, I dealt with um, charity work uh, the behind the scenes for a lot of nonprofits in Maine. Ended up doing strategic planning for an outfit I really care about the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project, the only one in Maine that provides legal services to low-income asylum seekers and other immigrants, and became eventually the interim executive director of the Portland Ballet here in Portland. So all of those things are important to me. The charities that I have supported for almost 50 years, some of them, are Doctors Without Borders mm. and Save the Children. Right. Both of which are active in just about every trouble spot on the globe at this point. And they've done, in my view, brilliant work. Yeah. 
I think Save the Children's come up maybe four or five times actually in these interviews. It's it seems to be like to support. Good. Is there an app you couldn't live without? Not really. I, th- I think may- maybe one of the direct payment ones because it's so convenient, but mm-hmm. I'm okay without them. I use them, but. And is there anything I haven't asked you about that you'd like to share with our audience? I guess I'd say that this, which is not from about me, but it's about what a pleasure it is to have met you. Oh, thank and, you. <laughs> yes. And to, to see where this project has led. Uh, Good for you. I don't mean to sound like your mom, but um, that's it's wonderful that you've done this. And I so appreciate the connection that's possible through sessions like this between two different people in two different countries. It's just a pleasure to know you. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. This has been 50 Women Over 50, a podcast for women whose personal confidence is born of experience. Thank you to my guest, Stephanie Katsirilos, an actor, lawyer, and author. Her resilience and the spirit of which she has taken on life and its many unexpected twists and turns truly is an inspiration for us all. See the show notes to find links to Stephanie's socials, her book, and to information about some of the other things that we discussed on today's show. And thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please share a link to it with your friends and drop me a rating or a review on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also find my show on YouTube. Please follow me on social media too. Let's connect. Let's create a whole community of wise women over 50. See you next time on 50 Women Over 50. I'm your host, Sherry Lynn Starkey.